Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Awesome to see everyone here. I just uh, was thinking about coming this morning and just got filled with joy that we were going to be together again. I know it's only been six days since the last time we saw each other, but just something joyous about gathering together and worshiping the Lord together, hearing from the Word of God together, responding to what the Spirit is doing, and uh, I just just love each and every week. So we are jumping back into a teaching series that we began just before COVID-19 thought we needed a vacation, and uh, it's um, a series called the great romance and i'm excited to get back into this as we are following the narrative of the bible from the beginning throughout scripture to discover the greatest romance story ever told and it's might be a little strange to think about the bible as a romance story but the word romance simply means a feeling of excitement and mystery associated with love a feeling of excitement and mystery. And I'm here to tell you today, beloved, that the Bible, the Word of God, is filled with mystery. Why? Because our God is a mysterious God. We've heard that said a lot, that His ways are mysterious. And Isaiah says, His ways are not our ways, His thoughts are not our thoughts. There is a mystery to God, and it's a mystery He invites all of us into a journey of discovery, that we could discover how great and how glorious he really is. And not only is it mysterious, but it is also exciting as we see what God has done throughout human history to call us back to himself, to demonstrate his love for us in such a way that it would be compelling to draw us back into a relationship with him, back into his intimacy with the Lord. The Bible is a collection. Now think about this. It's a collection of 66 books. It's not a singular book. It is a library of books. It is 66 books with over 40 authors written over a period of thousands of years, and it tells one singular story. It tells us a story about how awesome our God is and how amazing, how indescribable his love for us is and how much he desires to be with each and every one of us. And we, even though the Bible is complete, there's no new scripture that's being written. The book of Revelation tells us what the end is going to be like. And really the end is not the end. It's the beginning of eternity. What is incredible about this is that we are living out the final pages of the story. We are not outside of Scripture. We are inside of Scripture. We are between that place of Jesus leaving after being risen from the dead and returning to set up his eternal kingdom. We are living the pages of the Scripture, the final story. So you and I are actually in the great romance story. And what we're attempting to do through this journey as we're looking through the Bible is highlight the ways God has revealed himself, his unfailing love, his overwhelming love for his people. As the father gathers his children back to himself and the son of God cultivates a bride for himself. And the desire is that by seeing the mystery and by 
experiencing the excitement, that it fuels this excitement to not only worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but that excitement that we experience when we worship God, it leads us to respond to Him, to draw close to Him so that we can experience the one who is in pursuit of our hearts. God wants to encounter you today. God wants to transform you today. God wants to love you in a new way, in a fresh way today. And so we began this, this study. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 22, mostly. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. The scriptures will also be on the screen, as well as in the YouVersion Bible app. But just to kind of summarize where we've been, the story, this great romance story, begins at the creation of the world in Genesis 1-1. And as we see, as we've read through uh, these stories leading up to where we are in the, the story today, we see how mankind has struggled and has experienced d- difficulties with its own rebellious heart. As once sin entered into the world, now our hearts are deceitfully wicked. They are rebellious. There's a nature in us that is bent on rebellion against God. And as we rebel against God, we break the fellowship with God that we once enjoyed, the fellowship that was broken at creation when sin entered into the world. And now we who are sons and daughters, rather than being seated in the heavenly realms with God, we were severed from that relationship, and rather being sons and daughters, now we're orphans in the world. And all the way from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 6, we see how the devil and the demonic kingdom entered into the world took the authority God gave man, took authority over mankind, over the world, and has sown corruption, wickedness, sin of all kinds, trying to distort the very good and perfect creation God made in the beginning. And we see that God sent a flood to purge the earth of that wickedness and that corruption, not because he was mean, but because he was heartbroken at what had become of humankind and the world. And the flood was sent to begin, really, the restoration process. Yet we see under the weight of our sinful nature, the rebelliousness of our own heart, that we still have this tendency to rebel, to wander away from God, for our hearts to become cold to Him rather than burn hot for Him. And we see how the enemy began to influence mankind again. And mankind, in Genesis chapter 11, at the Tower of Babel, once again tried to create a world that was devoid of God rather than submitted to God. And now, through the influence of the enemy, as they're trying to make themselves rulers of the earth and set their own gods as gods over creation, without respect to Yahweh or El Elyon, the Most High God, we see God intervene again in Genesis chapter 11 as he goes into the city of Babylon, the, the land of Babylon or Shinar, to the Tower of Babylon, and he separates people into tribes, nations, and tongues to slow the descent of humanity into evil once again. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, here's what the Word of God says about this moment. He says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. So in Genesis 11, God didn't just create languages in this moment. He actually made boundaries for the nations that would exist. He ordained people to live in those nations. He created culture for those nations. And he also set up principalities, spiritual rulers, over those nations. You ever wonder why every nation has a different God? It's because of this moment. 
God allowed the enemy to create a hierarchy of spiritual rule over the earth, in essence, to minister and to guide people. But we can see in Psalm chapter 2, as David is writing this psalm, that something happened in these spiritual rulers as they began to rule the earth. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem on my holy mountain. The rulers of the earth wanted to break free from their slavery to God, his sovereign rule over all of creation, and even set themselves up against the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, who was to come. But we need to understand the context of this psalm. David is writing the psalm from the land of Israel in ancient days. But in that time, Israel was the only nation to actually worship God. Every other nation that ever existed was polytheistic. They had multiple gods. There were gods of many kinds, and God called the nation of Israel out of that paganism in order to cultivate a people for himself. So when David's writing this, he's not just talking about physical kings that rule the earth. He's talking about the principalities, the rulers that God set up at the Tower of Babel, who now, rather than leading men to the worship of God, wanted to rebel against God, even themselves leading mankind again further and further away from the worship of the Lord. And they set themselves up against the Messiah that would come, the one God appointed to rule over his people. And we can see from this passage of Scripture that God set aside, even though he set up the entire world to be ruled by these principalities, he set up a small portion for himself, the land of Israel, and more specifically, the city of Jerusalem, which is why, the nations are trying to destroy the very people that God called out to himself. You wonder why a very small piece of land about the size of the state of Delaware is in constant conflict and why these nations want to wipe out that place and get rid of the Jews? It's because God chose them for his very own people. He declared that place to be the place where he would be worshipped. As both human and now angelic realm began to defect away from Yahweh, God calls out a man and his family, a man named Abraham. He chooses this man to become, to cultivate a people for himself as he's pulling this family away from the depravity and the wickedness of the people of the world. He calls this man to be a father of the people he set aside for himself, to be holy unto the Lord, a holy people. And not only did he set aside this man and his family to be a people for himself, but also he chose a land, the land of Israel, to be the place where God would reserve for himself. That is why it's called the promised land. It's because God promised Abraham that this land would be his inheritance. So Abraham leaves his father's country and in the process goes on many adventures, has many uh, struggles and trials. But the ache of his heart, even though he was with God and God was with him, God was blessing him, the ache of his heart and the ache of his wife's heart is that they had no children. They were barren. They couldn't have children. And in this time and in this culture, it was a shameful thing to not be able to conceive and have children. It was a blessing to have many children, which is why many 
men took many wives. The more wives they had, the more children they had. And that cons- uh, was a sign of being blessed by the gods or blessed by God. And so Abraham and Sarah couldn't have any children. So this was the ache of their heart. And one day God comes and promises that they would have a child. But since they were old in age, I, I, I think the scripture is hilarious in some places. And it's easy to skip over and miss it. But the, the scripture literally alludes to uh, Sarah's womb being like dust, like beyond childbearing age, that there was no way for her to conceive and have a child. I just think that imagery is, is quite hilarious. But here, um, Abraham is given this promise of God, he and Sarah, and they know that they're old. Her womb's made of dust, and they're like, we don't know how this is going to happen, and if we wait any longer, we're probably going to die. So we're going to partner with God, and we're going we're gonna to help him out a little bit. And so they have this crazy idea that Abraham could sleep with her handmaiden, and they could have a, a son through the handmaiden. They go through the process. She becomes pregnant, and they have Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn son. But when the time came for Sarah to have her son, Isaac, conflict had and competition had arisen in this family unit so much so that Sarah comes to Abraham and says, look, I've had it. I don't want them around anymore. You need to disown your son. You need to divorce this wife, kick them out, and get them gone. And Abraham didn't want to do that, but God said that he would take care of them because they were of his line. And so he heeded the voice of his wife. He divorced his, his handmaid. He disowned his son, and he sent them packing. And now we pick up our reading in Genesis chapter 22. As Abraham and Sarai are cultivating this family, their son is beginning to grow up into a young man. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 22 of Genesis, Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. He says, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. And go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped some wood for the fire for a burnt offering, set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants, and the boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he carried in, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. Now imagine yourself, especially those of you that are parents, imagine yourself having this conversation with your son. Put yourself in Abraham's place. Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? Verse 8, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. And then he tied his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. 
And then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, the people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. Remember, who were their enemies? It wasn't just the people against Abraham. It was the spiritual forces behind the rulers of the world. Part of the blessing of Abraham is that he would conquer not just physical but also spiritual enemies. Verse 18, he says, And through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Why will the nations be blessed? Because Messiah would come through his line and rescue the world from their sins, delivering those who receive Jesus from the power of the enemy. Verse 19, Then they returned to the servant and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. And I can't imagine the anguish in Abraham's heart. I can't imagine the fear in Isaac's eyes as they're going through this process. And I'm so thankful, God, that the story ends the way it does, revealing that you're not a God of death and destruction. You're not a God of torture and suffering. You're a God of life and freedom. You're a God of blessing and promise. You're a God of unfailing love. And I just pray, God, as we unpack the scripture, Lord, you'd reveal Jesus to us today. You give us perspective maybe that we've never had before. You reveal your heart and your love for us in a way that draws us in and causes us to want to lean in and give you more of ourselves, that we truly give you ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you. Holy Spirit, come, move, speak in Jesus' name. If we agree, we say together, amen. So here we have an intense story. Can you put yourself in that place? An intense story. I can't imagine a request like that. There are many things that God has asked me, our family, to give up, but he's never once asked for a child. I cannot imagine. Um, my wife and I, we're, we're self-inflicting harm to ourselves. We're watching this show called uh, The Locator, and then another version of it's called Last Hope, where this guy is a private investigator where he's seeking long-lost relatives, where he goes in and he finds, like, uh, parents for kids who are given up for adoption or long-lost children who are given up for adoption and reunites these families together. And the, the episodes are only about 20 minutes long, but about 10 minutes in, we're both, like, in full-on cry. And uh, it's, it's sad, but, you know, joyous all at the same time. And I don't know why we keep watching it and doing that to ourselves, but I think we're addicted to it now, so you can pray for us. But... But I can just think here, it's not that God was saying, give up your son. One, he already gave up one son. He already had to get rid of his firstborn and, and disown him. And the heartbreak and the anguish having to do with that separation. Now God is saying, kill this one. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice to me. Like If you stop and really think about the weight of what he just went through, it will devastate you. And if you put yourself in Abraham's place, imagine, if you will, praying 
an entire lifetime for something. The man's 80, 90 years old at this point. He's not a spring chicken. He is old. Praying an entire lifetime. His wife praying. How many tears did they cry? How many sleepless nights over this burden in their heart? God, we just want a son. We don't care about money. We don't care about fame. He has a conversation with God earlier in the account, and he says, I'm going to end up leaving everything to my servant because I have no heir of my own, and what what good is all the things that you want to bless me with if I don't even have a son? Nothing in his life compared to the value of having a child, and now he has this child, and God is saying, I want him too. I want you to give him to me. You've prayed and waited your whole life for one thing. God finally gives it to you. You get to begin to enjoy it, to to invest your heart into it, to, to bond to this thing. And then God comes and asks for it back. See, the name Isaac means laughter. And the reason why he was given that name is because finally Abraham and Sarah had joy in their life. It says, God has brought me laughter. Those that have heard this story will laugh with me. Why? Because God has brought me joy. And here God is saying, that source of joy I've given you, I want to take it from you. I want you to willingly give it back to me. And God tested Abraham this way, not because God is mean or vindictive or because he just likes to mess with people. No, God did this because he wanted to do something so significant in Abraham's life, something beyond his even imagination, something that would extend beyond his lifetime, that would go beyond the impact of just his family, something that would impact the entire world for all time. That what God was wanting to do in his life was greater than what he could possibly wrap his mind around. But before God would pour out that blessing, he needed to know, did Abraham love God more than he loved the very thing that he prayed for, cried for, longed for, hoped for, and dreamed for his entire life? Do you, Abraham, love me more than this? Was Abraham's love and devotion of God greater than the object of his affection and the source of his present joy? And the reason why God tested him this way is because God's desire, his heart, is that nothing would take his place in our lives. The first of the Ten Commandments says, There is one God, and him and him alone should you serve. There shall be no other gods before me. Nothing gets to be God in our life but God. Nothing should take his place. We should not get so attached physically, emotionally, spiritually to things that our hearts pull away from the Lord. It's been my experience that before God will bring a blessing into your life, often it requires you to let go of something, to empty your hand of something so that he can then put something back into it. And the tighter we cling to things in this world, the greater it reveals our hearts and the level of our love for him. Our willingness to let go reveals how devoted we are to the Lord. Before I met my wife, I kind of accepted this fact. I grew up riddled with insecurity and, and just shame and guilt on myself. And I dated a, a little bit growing up, but I got to a point where I just decided, you know what, there's probably nobody for me in the state of Missouri. I grew up in Missouri mostly in my life, and, and uh, I got to this point where I thought, nobody wants to date me, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms, you know. 
So it's had this very negative view on my life. And so I just thought, you know what, there's nobody in Missouri for me. I just don't think I'll ever meet somebody here. I got to this point where I say, God, if, I, if I'm supposed to be single the rest of my life, then I just accept that. I, I'm just giving you my, my relationship status. I'm putting this in your hands. Whatever your will is, I'm, I'm going to be okay with that. Just, you know, take my life and here you go. And it was not long after that moment where I said, God, I'm giving this burden to you. I'm just not going to worry about it anymore. I'm going to place my life in your hands. If you want me to have a wife, bring me a wife. If you want me to be single, I'll be single. It wasn't long after that that a co- uh, we got this um, tip from a guy we knew that there was a music competition happening in Nashville, Tennessee, and he was kind of encouraging our band to go compete. And so we were trying to arrange for us all to go, but uh, half the band couldn't make it. So the drummer and I decided, well, we're just going to go. We're going to take the courses, the seminars, and we'll watch the competition and just have a great weekend. So we went down to Nashville, Tennessee, just planning to uh, take the seminars. And I was going to enter the songwriting competition and see you know, what I could do there, get some feedback on the songs that I was writing. And while I was there, the first night of the competition, Tony was there performing with her band um, that she was in, uh, her music teacher had a put together a group, and they were in the competition. And after the competition, they had like a meet and greet together. And so um, I went up there and creepily grabbed her arm and said, "Hey, how's it going?" You know, and freaked her out, but she, you know, instantly knew I was the one for her, I guess. But uh, but we met and we hit it off, and uh, a long distance relationship for a while. But we ended up getting engaged and getting married. Didn't expect that at all. And she had also kind of laid her status, relationship status, to the Lord, just thinking, you know, God, whatever you want to do, I'm okay with. I'm not going to quit worrying about this. I'm not going to worry about, you know, having a boyfriend or anything like that. I just, I want to serve you, and that's what I want to do. And so after we both laid that down, God was able to move things in our lives where out of nowhere we didn't know that we would meet in a place. And I didn't know how prophetic I was because I was actually right. There was nobody in the state of Missouri for me. Because she lived in Michigan, and I lived in Missouri. So it was a self-fulfilled prophecy. But what I see through that, and just what was so amazing, is that I was searching for love and acceptance in all the wrong places. And I didn't know that God was actually preparing me to meet my wife. And what I needed to do is quit looking where she couldn't be found. So he could lead me to where she could be found, to stop chasing leads down the wrong road and follow him on the right one. And now through her, and I'm so thankful to God that because of her and through her, I'm finally discovering what it means to be actually loved and accepted unconditionally, even if I'm still just a broken mess. To know that that she's with me for the long haul and, and just accepts me as I am and is helping me become the man God has created me to be. And I think the reason why a lot of dreams go unfulfilled or maybe blessings that we're praying for haven't come yet is because we have not put them into the hand of the Lord. We're still trying to control our circumstances and our situation. In Proverbs 16, verse 3, this is a verse that we've memorized as a family during our family night devotions. Proverbs 16, 3 says, Commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. Commit your actions to the Lord And then your plans will succeed. And I believe this is a word for someone here today. God just really put this on my heart as I was writing this message. The reason you have not found what you're looking for is because you're looking in the wrong place. 
And God wants to empty your hand of what you think you want so that he can put in your hand what you actually really need. God wants you to empty your hand of what you think you want so he can put in your hand what you really need. And to get to that place, you need to surrender what you think is your source, source of joy so he can show you that he really is your source of joy. And this is what was happening in Abraham's life. Abraham had this source of joy, but God wanted him to see that it's not Isaac that is your source of joy. It's the one who gave you Isaac that is the source of joy. It's not the blessing that is your source. It is the blessing giver. It's the one who gives the blessing that is your source of joy. And when we get to that place where we recognize all good things come from above, come from the Father of lights who has no shifting shadow, no, 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 no shift or turn, that God is eternally good and amazingly glorious, that that is where our joy comes from, then we will have a fuller and better appreciation of the things that he gives us. What he's telling Abraham is what you really need is found in the Lord. Abraham trusted God and loved him to the point that he was willing to surrender his most precious possession and place his greatest dream in the hand of the Lord. And I believe God only wanted good for him and not disaster. God didn't want to cause Abraham pain. And Jeremiah 29, 11, it's a very famous passage of Scripture. It says God wants good and not disaster to give us a future and a hope that that's really his heart for Abraham. And Abraham had been with God, walked with God long enough to know that my God is not a God of death and destruction. My God isn't a God who wants bad or ill for me. He's not a God who wants to cause me pain, but will leverage pain in my life to bring out the best good. He knew God's character. And, and we can see this even in this story after God asked him to sacrifice Isaac because in Genesis 22, verse 5, he tells his servants to stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will travel a little further and we will worship there and then we will what? We'll come right back. So even though God had asked Abraham of this, and that's all the instruction he had, he knew God's heart and his character was not for evil. And I don't know if he knew God wouldn't have him go through with it or he just believed in his heart that even if he killed his son, God would raise him, that either way that God was going to give his son back to him. His faith was such that he trusted the nature and character of God that he was willing to obey at whatever the cost. He knew God was not a God of death. Genesis 22, 8, when Isaac asked him, where's the, the sacrificial animal? Where's the sacrificial lamb? Abraham knew God's heart, and he says, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. Abraham was believing in the character and promises of God. That's what kept Abraham going. That's what kept him walking faithfully even in this circumstance. And God has asked some of you to walk through some very difficult seasons. And it's going to be belief and trust in his nature and character that's going to keep you going, knowing that on the other side is his goodness and breakthrough and blessing. And this is a moment where we hear another name for God, where Abraham reveals one of the nature uh, natures of God, a name for him is God our provider, Jehovah Jireh. Somebody say God our provider. God, our provider. This is who God is. He is our provider. He's not our take awayer. He is our provider. He is our provision. The Lord will provide. He will be faithful. He will take care of us. 
The story is so rich in theological, like, belief, understanding, and teaching. There's so many applications. And the primary application of this passage is a prophetic outlook of God's ultimate provision in sending Jesus to the cross on our behalf. See, because of sin, because of the mistakes that we've made, the stuff that we get wrong, these things that, that we do that aren't right, that dishonor him, that wrong our, our brothers and sisters, our, our family and friends, because of this junk that's in our life, something has to atone for that. There has to be justice given to make injustice right. And so in order to judge or give justice to sin, something has to be sacrificed. And so this is why people sacrificed animals to the Lord, because a spotless lamb, a spotless animal, something without any impurity could be offered, something pure could be offered for something that was impure, something clean for something unclean. And just as Isaac was this young man. As a young man, he represents purity. He represents um, youth and innocence. And God asked Abraham to sacrifice something pure, something innocent, just as Jesus was innocent and perfectly pure. Isaac was Abraham's only son, and Jesus is the father's only son. Just as Abraham put the wood on Isaac's back and marched him up the mountain, the father put on the wooden cross on Jesus' back and marched him up the mountain. And Abraham had fire in one hand and a knife in the other. And this is imagery that when, when you look into it is telling of this event because fire always symbolizes the wrath of God or the fire, judgment, purification, it's this all-consuming, destructive force. And so the fire was to set to the altar to consume the sacrifice. But the knife was also the instrument that would kill the animal. But the knife here wasn't just an instrument of death. If you look at the original language, it talks about it being an instrument to devour, like an instrument at the table, like a table knife, something that enables you to consume. So not only did we have the fire that was to destroy, to pour out the wrath of God, but we also had an instrument to consume or for consumption. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, we know scripturally and biblically that Jesus didn't just die for sin, but the weight of the wrath of God that was to be poured out on sin to make all injustice just, defied again or righteous again, that all of that wrath was poured out on Jesus in a moment. That the anger of God's wrath in fullness was poured out full strength on Christ on the cross. And not only was there the wrath of God being poured out, the fire of God, but also Jesus was stabbed by a spear, pierced his side, and out of his side flowed blood and water. And if you look at what Jesus actually went through, according to APU.edu, the science of the crucifixion, that there was so much damage to his body and the placement of Jesus on the cross would have caused him immeasurable pain and suffering. And the signs listed of what he went through point to cardiac arrest as his body began to shut down. And in severe cases of cardiac arrest, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. And so they look at everything he went through, even with all the blood loss and everything, that Jesus most likely died of a heart attack. Amongst all the pain and suffering, dehydration, and, and emotional suffering. So his body was so destroyed and pushed to the extreme that his heart virtually exploded. 
So we think of the cross and the spear as instruments of death in this moment, but really what killed Jesus was a broken heart. The weight of sin, the weight of the wrath of God, what he knew he was doing is what destroyed our Lord. His blood was poured out on our behalf. His body was broken. And before Jesus died on the cross, he, in an illustration, he said, whoever does not eat my flesh and drink my blood cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. And he wasn't advocating cannibalism. It was a symbolic message that he was giving because it refers back to the sacrifices in the Old Testament. When they would offer the sacrifice, they would not only burn the body, but they would use the knife to carve up the good meat, and they would eat it like a barbecue. They would let the body burn, and they would eat the meat. And so Jesus is connecting the dots that not only was Isaac supposed to be offered as a sacrifice, burnt with fire, but that God was also asking Abraham to complete the process with the knife. And so when the animal was offered in place, that he was delivered of what God was actually asking him to do. But the symbology is powerful because by consuming the sacrifice, what you're doing is you're becoming one with the blessing that the sacrifice is offering. By consuming the sacrifice, we become one with it, therefore enjoying the benefits of it both physically and spiritually. So when Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh or drinks my blood, he's not talking about actual cannibalism. He's talking about spiritual unity with himself, that we become one with him as he is one with the Father in heaven. We become so intimate with him that we become one together. And right here, as Abraham is about to strike his son and do this horrific thing, the angel of the Lord intervenes and stops him mid-sacrifice, mid, uh, blesses him, and provides a ram, another sacrifice to be offered in Isaac's place. So here, Isaac was poised for death, but because of the provision of God in the ram, the ram dies and Isaac lives. This is why there's many point to Isaac as being representative of Christ in this pa passage, and we can see many of the similarities. I don't believe Isaac really represents Jesus. I believe Isaac represents you and me. Because Jesus bore my cross. He endured my shame. He carried my sin. He endured that for me and for you. And what was meant to be done to Isaac, payment for sin, another sacrifice was provided. And Jesus is that sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, it's destruction. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We were destined for wrath because we are born into the sinful state. So Jesus took our cross. He took our punishment upon himself. Because of sin, we would have been on the altar. We should have been on the cross. But in the moment when all hope seemed lost because of his great love and tender mercy, the Father provides another sacrifice, Jehovah Jireh, our provider. So Isaac gets to go free, and the ram suffers in his place. And just as God instructed Abraham to walk up one side of the mountain, at the same time God was leading the ram up the other side, God already had the provision prepared for Isaac. And God already had the provision prepared for you and I. The moment we were born into this world, the provision was made through Jesus Christ that we could be saved, that we could be forgiven of our sins and cleansed of all unrighteousness. 
even when all hope seemed lost. If you know someone, maybe you've had a time in your life where you've been so far away from God and you did so many rebellious things that now you regret and there's so much shame in your life and you're like, how could God love me? How could God even want a relationship with me? Beloved, Romans 5.8 says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You did not have to become anything to be loved by God. God loved you because he created you. God loved you because he desires a relationship with you. And Jesus was your substitutionary sacrifice so that all the stuff that was in your life could be washed away. You could become altogether new, a new life. Jesus took our place. And what's cool about this, and you miss it if you don't pay close attention to the text, what's awesome and I just get excited about is the time and the place of the event. So Abraham is asked by God to go to the mountains, and at the right time he'd show him the mountain for the sacrifice. So he takes his servants, he takes his son, and they go out there. So they had already been in the area for some time, and then God highlights the mountain where he was to do this sacrifice. And so do you remember just in the reading what day it was whenever Abraham had to go through the sacrifice? Do you remember? Anybody? The third day. Amen. Genesis 22, verse 4. It says, read this with me. On the third day, on the third day of their journey, Abraham saw in the distance the mountain. And that day was not a day of death, but a day of salvation. Here's why this is amazing. It's because on the third day, when the sacrifice should have taken place, where death should have reigned over Isaac, and mourning and grief should have come to this family. There was not death, but there was life. Isaac had a new life. He had a new purpose. He had a new reason for living. He had a new, new relationship with God. And just as Jesus died, on the third day, he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave and now offering new life, new purpose for all who would trust in his name. The symbolism of what is happening. God is telling the gospel of Jesus Christ thousands of years before Jesus would ever walk the earth through this man who would be the father of all who believe. It was God's plan all along to tell through Abraham the story of how God was going to redeem the world to gather his lost children and cultivate a bride for his son. And he used Isaac as a symbol of God's unconditional love and grace and substitutionary sacrifice. But before God could do this in Abraham's life, before he could bring about the redemptive work of Christ, which would happen thousands of years later, God needed Abraham to release control over his control and fear before the blessing could come. And I believe many of us are in that same place with our relationship with God. There are things God is asking of us. There are things that God wants to do in us and do through us. But before we get to that place, he's asking us to release control of our control. He's asking us to release our fear, release the little gods we've erected in our lives to let him have even the things we find to be sources of joy in our life so we can discover that those things aren't what bring us joy. He is the one. That brings us joy. He has good for us in mind. See, deep down, I think we all fear that if we surrender to the purposes of God, that we will lose what makes us happy or what we feel like makes us happy rather than experiencing something better. 
And God isn't a God of just good enough. He's a God of over and above. He's a God of great, not a God of good. Again, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not disaster to give you a future and a hope. If we truly believe the scripture, if we truly believe the heart of God, if we truly get excited over who God is, even when he asks us to do things that are scary, but we don't fully understand, we can trust that his plans are always good. And if he's calling you to surrender, it's not to harm you, it's to elevate you. And there are some things that God wants to do in your life that far exceed your understanding. Things that will go and last beyond your lifetime, that will extend your children's children's children, that may even have a global scale in mind, and he's waiting for you to say, here I am. All I have is yours, just like Abraham. See, this is why Jesus came. It's amazing is that God doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't himself done. You see, Jesus was before time. Jesus stepped out of glory and into humanity. And he became that sacrifice. Think of the glory Jesus experienced in heaven. He had everything that he needed. He was perfectly complete. He had everything he needed. He was lack of nothing. He was glorious. He was God. He was worshipped. He was exalted. But what he didn't have is something that he wanted, and that was a relationship with you and with me. So to get that, he left that glory, and he became a sacrifice. And why did he do that? Why did he do that? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. God knew that on the other side of suffering was something greater than what he presently experienced. It was a life with us. And he was presently experiencing a life without us. It was a life with his children. It was a life with the bride. It was a life shared together. John 15, 13, there's no greater love than one that would lay down his life for his friends. God willingly sent his son. Jesus willingly laid down his life because on the other side of it was an unspeakable joy. And beloved, on the other side of what God is calling you into is a life of unspeakable joy. The road may not be easy, but it is always worth it. And Jesus demonstrated the model of God's provision. It's not in the holding on to what we have. It's in the letting go. It's surrendering good for the great, giving Jesus more and more of your heart so he can give more and more of himself to you. Um, Jake was over at our house this week helping us finish up the HVAC system in our house for the remodels that we're doing. And we're just sitting there talking, and I just had a thought, and it, and it tied into our, the message today. And I was just thinking about relationships, like especially between a husband and wife, but Deep friendship relationships are the same way. Relationships are built on trust. And they are built on this intimacy that you have. But it takes vulnerability to be intimate. And in order to be vulnerable, you have to be trusting. You have to trust that they have your best interest at heart. They have to trust that you have their best interest at heart, that if I share a secret, it's not going to be told. If they share a secret, it's not going to be told. That if I'm broken, I'm not going to be judged, condemned, and criticized. I'm going to be loved and accepted. There's this vulnerability that has to exist for intimacy to exist. And here we are in this place where God asks us all the time, right, draw close, trust him. We hear that all the time. I'm going to trust in the Lord. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. But God isn't only asking us to trust him. God is also choosing to trust you and me. He's asking us to trust him, but he's also trusting you and I. He is trusting us with his most precious gift. I'm going to come. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to endure the cross, and I'm going to trust that you're going to respond. I'm going to trust that if I put myself out there, you're going to draw close to me. God is trusting us, and not only is he trusting us with this opportunity, but he's even trusting us with the Holy Spirit who will come and live in us. God's presence will come and live in us before all of creation, the only time in history where God has dwelled not just with man, but in man. He's trusting us with the most incredible opportunity. And in order to have that relationship, to have that intimacy, it takes trust. God, I trust you with everything I am. I trust you with my whole life. I lay nothing, take nothing off the table. You may have known why you came here today. But one thing's for sure, I believe in my heart, God has come to meet you. And there are some things that God is calling you into. And he's asking you, just trust me. And maybe for you, it's beginning a relationship with God. You've, you've heard a lot about this. You've prayed prayers before. But there's not been a time in your life that you've said, God, I'm going to trust you with my everything. My heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. I'm going to give you my life. And so you've been religious, but there's not been a real authentic relationship with God. You don't know the unconditional love of God. You're still wearing all the guilt and shame that you've grown up with. Maybe you've even lived a lifetime of guilt and shame. But God wants to introduce you to the unconditional love of God that will break all that stuff away. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those in Christ. All things that are old are past. Everything's become new. God has a life for you that is so filled with mystery, wonder, and excitement. And he's prepared it for you in advance. And all you have to do to live that out is to say yes to the Lord. I trust you. And in just a moment, when we bow for prayer, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that today. Maybe God's calling you into a calling on your life. He's put something on your life, and it's really scary. There's some things that you're unsure about. You don't feel qualified or cut out for the job, but you know he's put that in your heart. God's asking you, trust me. Just trust me. Jesus endured the cross, disregarded its shame because of the joy awaiting him. And beloved, on the other side of the calling is a joy that you can't express. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment. No one looking around as we just go into a time of response and the music begins to play. As we just enter this time of response, I just want to invite you, if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus was your substitutionary sacrifice. The Bible says all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. There's not a perfect person on the planet. All of us deserve death. We just read a moment ago, the wages of sin is death. Death is not a punishment. Death is what we earn 
Wages are what you earn when you go put in your hours at your job. At the end of the week, you get paid what you earned for doing your job. Death is what you earn because of sin. And we've all sinned. So all of us have earned death. Eternal separation from God. But beloved, God doesn't want you to be lost. He wants you to be found. He wants to celebrate a new life in you. He wants to come and he wants to live in your heart. He wants to give you a new identity. He wants you to help you shed all the shame and the guilt and the, and the junk that you've been carrying your whole life. He wants to set you free. He wants to take what you've been carrying and he wants to give you freedom. He said, my burden is easy. My burden is light. And he'll exchange his blessing for your junk today if you say yes to him. And right now where you are, you can just call out to the Lord. You can just pray right where you are. Those of you online that are watching, if you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you've never begun a relationship with him, God wants to do the same thing in you. He wants to transform your life. Jesus already paid the price. He already made the payment. He already satisfied the debt. All you have to do, like Abraham, is say, here I am. And you can do that right now. Just call out to the Lord. You can say a simple prayer like, Father, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for paying my debt. I trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And today, I proclaim Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and come live in my heart. Fill me with your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If you've prayed that prayer today, I just want to encourage you by praying a little prayer for you. I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. If you prayed that and you're watching online, just send us a note in the comments or a a private message online. We want to pray for you and just pray God's blessing on you. And I just pray, God, for those that are hearing the gospel and seeing how you offered yourself. And like, like that ram, you substituted and you took our place and you did it because of love. And you gave this story to demonstrate how desperate you love us, that you're willing to go through the horrors of the cross to renew us so that we can lay down what we think will make us happy to discover unspeakable joy in you. And I pray for those that make that decision today. I pray, God, for those that know that they've got things in their life they need to surrender, that there's some obsessions, there are some uh, unhealthy uh, connections to some things in this life that are temporary, God, that you're calling them to surrender. And I know it's not to take things away that are, that are good, but it is to break them away from the worship of stuff in order to discover true hope and true purpose in you. So I pray, God, that they would make the decision to surrender today. I thank you for your love, God. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you draw every heart today as we go into a time of response. So God, I pray that you would extend your healing hand, that your healing power would be released. God, that you would fill us with your word, that your word would be proclaimed. God, your prophetic word to call us into our divine destiny. And God, that you do your work in Jesus' name.
us at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.